Welcome back to episode 143 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology and cultural issues, all from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing here at the seminary, joined once again by Reverend Andrew Compton, uh, who joined us last week on uh, the discussion of his dissertation on the book of Ezekiel. Reverend Compton, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Good. So you discussed last time, uh, you introduced us to your work on uh, the book of Ezekiel and what exactly it is that you're probing mm-hmm. uh, within that, looking at uh, the identity of Ezekiel's uh, vocation, yep. work, uh, identity work, work identity specifically, and how that's manifested uh, in his time in exile, because you know when he's in exile, he's not, you know, externally doing acts of, of a priest because there's no temple, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you you looked at uh, vocational psychology and, and, and how this works. So just just offer us some concluding thoughts on that, and and if I understand where you'll uh, be going, uh, mm-hmm. you'll be branching off into uh, the sign acts that Ezekiel <laughs> did um, as both this priest prophet. So take it away. Yeah, sure. No, thank you, Jared. Yeah, well, if you're listening, if you're back with us, I um, I applaud you because <laughs> listening to somebody talk through a, a dissertation, yes, yes, listening to somebody talk through a dissertation, uh, it, you know, it 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 can force you to sort of um, listen and and almost go along for the ride unless you can latch on to something. So it's it can be challenging. So I'm glad you're glad you're back. You know, I was uh, talking through again this this idea of vocational psychology and why that can be a useful uh, tool for thinking about elements in Ezekiel that may be reflecting his ongoing priestly uh, sense of work identity. Now, one of the things I, I mentioned, I think very briefly, is this idea of crafting a job. And I mentioned the remember the, the woman at the uh, maternity ward, yeah. the hospital. It's interesting how various vocational psychologists have noted the kinds of strategies. There's a, there's a fairly limited taxonomy of strategies that uh, have been employed. Take, uh, for example, um, uh, some some main work. I won't even mention the names because most of these studies you'll find, it'll be like six scholars who write an article together. <laughs> so it's always a stuff like, you know, um, uh, Duffy et al. Yeah. <laughs> is how you're citing these things. So I won't even worry about the names, although, you know, you can email me or something if you want, I don't know, to, to look this up. A couple of different ways people have seen the strategies used. One taxonomy had three. Uh, Task crafting, relational crafting, and cognitive crafting. Another one sort of related to that, task emphasizing, job expanding, role reframing, and leisure crafting. Because there are some people who say, look, I'm doing this job. I'm not really passionate about it. I'm going to pursue my calling in my leisure time. So uh, the thing is, I don't know if Ezekiel liked to water ski. I don't know if Ezekiel liked to climb mountains, right? I, I don't mean to be flippant, but right, I don't know what leisure looked like for Ezekiel. We don't really have any insight into that. But we can look at these various uh, various elements of his his work. For example, do we see things where he's emphasizing particular tasks of the priesthood? I mean, that's what Dr. Betts was suggesting, and also Dr. Duguid, that he was emphasizing the teaching of Torah. That would be an example of task emphasizing. Or was he involved in job expanding? Um, you know, are there ways of, of thinking about um, 
that would in some ways be a task crafting strategy as well. Was he involved in relational crafting? Again, we don't have um, we don't have a lot of data from the book of Ezekiel uh, that we can work with. Although we we do have examples of his relations in the sense he did have a wife. Uh, we don't we know much about that. Admittedly, the elders of Israel often came to his house. So there's a relationship of some kind there. Uh, can we probe those accounts to see if we have a sense of of um, of whether his relationship related to his job? That's at least what we explore in a in a in a dissertation like this, uh, or cognitive crafting. Now that might sound very nebulous, but is there evidence from the book of Ezekiel that he was thinking about things that may not have traditionally been associated with the priesthood, but thinking about them in uniquely priestly ways? You know, uh, just as Christians, this is what we do. We may be doing jobs that don't feel as though they are distinctively Christian in any single way. And yet, we don't really think of them apart from our Christian faith. You know, the the, the tradesmen, um, you know, who are involved in building a house may not be going, aha, I'm nailing this frame together because Psalm such and such. No, but they are thinking, I'm going to this job because God has given me an able body that can do it. He's given me a mind that can that can do this. People need housing. God has has created people in his image. I should be concerned for the shelter of fellow image bearers because I'm a Christian. Right? That there's things that we as Christians do relative to our work and we we cognitively frame our work in light of our Christian faith. Right? And so cognitive crafting is is not such a nebulous Idea. It's just a very well-attested um, job crafting strategy that vocational psychologists have noted, and so I tried to, I tried to take those those tasks of or those those um, those elements of task crafting, relational crafting, and cognitive crafting, and say, if I look at a few different themes in Ezekiel, can I see anything that relates to that? And and I think I did. And that's what I've tried to argue in the dissertation. You sound pretty confident. I mean, it's, you know, again, part of it is the exercise in doing yep. the work. It's not that For I sure. made some giant breakthrough that's going to forever change how we preach Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's to try to explore whether this is a good answer to what seemed to be an impasse with yep. that flurry of literature. The other thing I should add as well is, um, you know, I've mentioned migrants. There are... Uh, there is a lot of research that's been done on vocational concerns for migrants. And so that gave another bunch of studies that, that I could look at. And also migrant trauma. There's been an entire discipline of, um, of trauma studies. Some of them get a little weird. I'll grant that. You know, some of them, for example, when Ezekiel is confronted with, uh, with the, the glory of God in Ezekiel 1, uh, they, they say that... Um, Ezekiel is in the process of being traumatized by writing this out or something. Mm. And he, he writes it in, and, and they come up with some, I mean, some of these have been studied, I'll grant that, but it just seems like a, a bit of an overread. Whereas I think there really is something to Ezekiel's trauma of exile. Remember, Babylon's not like, you know, three blocks over from Jerusalem. That's a long journey. They didn't take a, um, they didn't take a C-17, they, they weren't put on a train to Babylon. They walked. People died. People got injured. People who you got to know the first week of your journey um, were left for dead along the way. Right? It was very terrible. And there's trauma. 
To think that there's not trauma evidence in Ezekiel is to just not be taking Ezekiel seriously enough. That'd be like saying there's no evidence of trauma in Lamentations. I mean, for crying out loud, it's called Lamentations for a reason. They're lamenting this horrific event that happened in, in the destruction of Jerusalem and in the exile. So I've tried to look at also how this um, job crafting idea is very much expected and very proper um, as one coping with not only the new location, not only the vocational decentering from the temple, but also coping with the trauma of being exiled at sword point, leaving family, leaving many family dead, you know, leaving others dead along the way, likely not eating well. Uh, you, know, you think of these horrible uh, instances in history, the was it called the Bataan Death March or the the Trail of Tears? Or you think of these these um, these examples of people who had to travel, had to be exiled, and and the the horrors they experienced. So trauma, migrant studies work. These were all kinds of different, maybe different like floodlights, as it were. That I was then kind of pointing now at various passages to think: Do the is there data in Ezekiel um, that helps us to glimpse his priestly identity being modified to cope with a new place. In fact, I even titled my my study, it's called A Priest Coping with a New Place. And then it's got one of these, um, you know, one of these very dissertation-esque subtitles, A Vocational Psychology and Trauma Reading of Ezekiel's Priestly Identity. Wow. <clears throat> well done. Yeah, you got to come. You, if your subtitle is shorter than your title, they don't give you the degree. No, I didn't think I so. I think that's one of the requirements. But anyway, <laughs> well, I, I decided to try to analyze four particular things. You, you could do more, um, but you know you have to also really limit what you do. And in fact, what I did in this project, I think um, may be considered a bit too broad even. But I looked at four themes. Um, I tried to look at these uh, these sign actions these sign acts of Ezekiel 4 and 5, not others, there's others in the book, but those in particular, uh, I looked at Ezekiel's concern for purity and impurity. I looked at how Ezekiel described the glory of the Lord, the kavod, as it's called in Hebrew. And then I looked at uh, the final chapters, uh, Ezekiel's temple, his temple vision, what that might be telling us about an ongoing sense of a priestly identity. And each of those then made up a, a particular chapter where I tried to survey what this flurry of writings did with that topic. And it was interesting, some of the, some of the writers didn't even touch the topic. Others of the writers made everything about that one topic, but not the others. And so it was interesting to resurvey how these writers were appealing to that. And then I would try to analyze some passages uh, of note, exegete them, translate them, make cross-references, try to situate them historically, uh, canonically, in terms of the, the kerygma, the, the message of the prophets. And then afterwards, I tried to ask if there were any elements of, of task crafting, or relationship crafting, or, um, or cognitive crafting that might be gleaned from those. And that was what the project looked like. So, for example, we st- I started off with Ezekiel's um, Synacts. Now, um, of course, the Synacts, where he like lays on his side for all these days and lays on his other side, or he builds a little model of the city, 
Uh, one of them, he shaves off all his hair, so he's bald, which I don't really understand why that's a big deal. But the uh, you know, there, there's there's always been this question about what he's doing. Some early work uh, thought that this was evidence of psychosis. You know, some work in even in the 1800s. You know, thought that that Ezekiel was exhibiting all the all the typical um, all the typical uh, elements of um, uh, of schizophrenia. Yeah. Um, uh, even some others. Um, there's a book by a by a scholar named Halperin, David Halperin, who who came up with this very strange theory of of uh, neglect and abuse as an infant. That made you know, like Ezekiel fall in love with his mom or something. I mean, there's just some weird stuff out there All right. that people are basing on the Synacts. Okay, wow. So the so the question is like, what do, what do these Synacts actually tell us? Um, most believing scholars, like myself, who who aren't going off the rails with this kind of stuff, <laughs> right? That think that no, this is recounting um, something a little less fanciful. Um, have uh, have seen them chiefly as sort of, um, you know, like sermon illustrations. Uh, you know, some pre- some preachers. We we don't teach students to do this at Mid America, but but you know, I've I've seen preachers get up and like they walk around the pulpit and they like smash plates on the sanctuary floor to make an illustration, or or they uh, you know they get a cell phone call in the middle of their sermon, or they like um, they shoot a bow and arrow in church. I don't know, right? Some people do this kind of stuff because they think it. It like it heightens what they're getting at, uh, and so the the idea is that Ezekiel's sign acts may be these kinds of message aids. There's certainly some uh, something to that. You know, they do help to make very vivid his message, and so rather than just a um, telling everybody, you know that um, that you're going to um, that you're going to have this distance between. Uh, yourself and God, and that God's wrath is going to be facing the city, and yet that that I'm going to mitigate that wrath through my mediators, the prophets, the priests, right? <clears throat> Instead, he has Ezekiel act it out, right? Ezekiel 4 verse 1, uh, Now you, son of man, get yourself a brick, place it before you, and inscribe a city on it, Jerusalem. Okay, a little model city of Jerusalem. Then lay siege against it, build a siege wall, raise up a ramp, pitch camps, place battering rams against it all around. Okay, we can sort of picture it, right? My, my, my kids do this in our sandbox. Then get yourself an iron plate and set it up as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it so that it is under siege and besiege it. This is a sign to the house of Israel. It goes on, you know, that's just one, that's just the first, uh, well, the, kind of the second of the sign acts I looked at, but the first sign act of chapter four. And sure, does that help to illustrate what the defeat of Jerusalem looks like. It does, yeah. But scholars have really wrestled with, yeah, but what is he signifying? What role is he playing? Is he is he playing the role of God, who's now about to judge the city? Is he playing the role of an intermediary, who's somehow mitigating God's judgment by putting an iron plate there? Is he playing the role of intermediary, who is further separating God from the city by means of the iron plate? Right, this is this is some of the debate going on, and and how scholars deal with it. Now, I actually um, decided because of the nature of the plate, it's it's something that has in common uh, other ritual tools from elsewhere in the Old Testament. It looked to me that by using this particular object, this 
particular iron wall, this iron plate, this could be brought into the orbit of a priest engaged in ritual action that was involved in mediating the relationship between between God and his people. And the priesthood would often do that. It had a, a, a time where the priests would often represent the people toward God, and they would turn and represent God toward the people. Mm-hmm. They would bless the people playing God's role as God's instruments. And then they would turn and they would petition God, representing the people, being an instrument of the people, right? And that, that was the role of a priest, to play that intermediary role. And it struck me then that that's a very reasonable reading of this, him setting an iron plate as part of this... Uh, mitigation of what could be outright elimination of the nation, just like we read about in Numbers 14. God says, I'll destroy the nation and restart with you, Moses. Interestingly, Moses has been, uh, Moses and Ezekiel have characters, as characters, um, have been very much compared. And and there's a lot that shows Ezekiel is is presented as a new Moses. Hmm. Interesting. In the book, which, wow, look at how here too then, could be an example of Ezekiel mitigating God's wrath in his priestly identity. Well, what does this have to do with with priesthood, though, and, and, and ritual? It's this, that the action described here, and the action described in chapter 5 with shaving off hair, the end of chapter 4 and baking bread over dung, which could potentially be a, a, an act of impurity, um, or the, the uh, closing of the mouth and being bound with cords, these are all things that have overlap with ritual passages of the Pentateuch. Not massive overlap, but degrees of overlap. Such that now, whereas Odell said Ezekiel 1 to 5 is still part of Ezekiel's commission, I'm looking at this thinking that's interesting that his commission then involves his body being contorted as part of an action sign that forms that identity. And it's forming that identity through actions that sound very priestly. And so what I did in, in, for example, the first study was try to analyze how the sign acts themselves, rather than merely being um, sort of action prophecies, as some have said, but they may still be serving then that priestly identity of Ezekiel, formative actions of a priestly identity, rituals that he undergoes that cement in his mind the ongoing propriety of his priestly work, even as he has a prophetic call. Keep in mind, some people don't want to hear a connection between priests and prophets. Um, They think, oh, you know, um, those two can't go together. Well, that's, first of all, just not true. They go together in Ezekiel. Um, They go together in Moses. I mean, they go together in a lot of different figures. But here, uh, to some degree, Jeremiah too, he's from the priest and Anatote, even though he doesn't have the same kind of distinctively altar-centered, temple-centered priestly identity. That's its own interesting question I just couldn't even explore. Interestingly, most of the people who reject a sort of a, a good working relationship between priests and prophets, I think, are, are misreading the prophetic critique of ritual It's not that the prophets were against ritual as such. They were against empty ritual, and they were against the kinds of rituals that were conducted by exploiting the poor, right? That's what they tend to be speaking against. There's there's very much a good working relationship, so to speak, between the priests and the prophets, at least between the godly priests and the godly prophets rather than the false prophets and the corrupt priests. 
But um, but also, you got to understand how much of this idea of an animosity by nature between priests and prophets goes back to the critical scholar Julius Wellhausen, who said that you had these um, you had this warm, dynamic, prophetic religion, and then you had these nasty priests come along, and they they made religion hard and cold and ritual. And then Wellhausen, being something of a kind of a Lutheranish guy in his day, although he was not what you would consider a believing Lutheran, I don't think, you had him saying, aha, and see, the priests are like the Roman Catholic priests and the prophets are like Lutheran ministers, Protestant ministers. And we've kind of bought into some of that sometimes in seeing the prophets as sort of the the warm, friendly, good guys and the priests, generally speaking, as the cold, bad guys. Well, our Lord is the prophet like Moses, and our Lord is a priest on the order of Melchizedek. I mean, I hope we <laughs> don't follow Wellhausen in that way unwittingly. Ritual, too, has been recognized as not simply a cold, mindless action, but it does have an intellectual component. Scholar at, at King's College in New York, Drew Johnson, has done some interesting work on how often rituals in the Pentateuch will will be tethered with knowledge. And so you, you are to build yourself booths, Sukkot, um, so that you will know that your fathers lived in booths. And Drew Johnson says, why couldn't your fathers just tell you they lived in booths? Why do you have to build them to know? And his point is there's a way that we know things when we do them, when we act them out, when our body is involved and not just our cognition. It's not to be less than cognitive. I think that's a big problem today. Plenty of people don't want to exercise their cognition, especially as it comes to their faith. But it's to be cognitive and to be bodily. And so to think of even these synacts in ritual categories, I think gives us kind of a new, um, a, a new view into Ezekiel's priestly identity as he's, as he's being formed into a, a priest who will be coping with a new place. And yet that doesn't make him less than a priest or kind of a half priest because he can't do ritual because he can't be at the temple. No, he's not at the temple, although it's interesting how he has a temple with him, so to speak. We'll get to that. But that's how I approached the Synax. Anyway, so that's how I've tried to to tease out the implications of, of vocational psychology for opening up our minds, really, to thinking about this passage that maybe has befuddled us for a long time might also be very much expected for someone with a deep vocational call as a priest from a priestly family, also being summoned unto a prophetic call and being formed into that office of priestly prophet by means of specific ritual acts that impress upon his mind and his body this new calling uh, of, a, of a priestly kind of prophet. Tune in next week as Reverend Compton wraps up his assessment of Ezekiel, making some final comments on the dynamic between Ezekiel's identity as both a prophet and a priest, particularly as it relates to purity rituals, Ezekiel's vision of the glory of God, and his final vision of an eschatological temple. 
For more podcast episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.